You're listening to Who Done It with me, Hattie Porteous, the podcast where I discuss solved and unsolved murder cases from around the world. Hello and welcome to episode two of the podcast Who Done It. Um, and I've got another solved murder case for you today. And I'm really excited to do talk about this murder case because it's one of the most fascinating and interesting ones that I've ever looked into. I watch a lot of YouTube videos and things on crimes, follow a lot of people who talk about them, discuss them. And honestly, this one is the one that's grabbed me the most. So as I say, I'm really interested to talk about it today. So before I start rambling on, we're going to be talking about the Van Breda family murders. As I say, this is a solved case and it took place in South Africa on the 27th of January in 2015 when three members of the Van Breda family were murdered. Now, South Africa has always had a bad reputation for crime and 49 murders happen every day there. The one key thing to remember in this case is that Henry Breda, who is the middle brother, I'll go through all the family and the siblings in a minute, but he was the only eyewitness of this whole case. So the family was made up of the dad, Martin, who was 54, the mum, Teresa, who was 55, and then their three children. So they had Rudy, who was the oldest brother, he was 22. They then had Henry, who, as I said, was the only eyewitness, he was 20, and Marley, who was 16. Now, they lived in the Gulf Estate in Stellenbosch, which is in South Africa, and they basically lived in this gated community, which is why this case is so strange because it is one of the safest areas in South Africa. As I say, it's a gated community, so the gates are extortionately high and the only way you can get in is with an access card. Now, the family was very, very well off and if you look up this estate, the Gulf Estate, Gulf Estate in Stellenbosch, it's like a dream world, literally the houses and everything. It literally looks like the dream house that you'd want. So the Van Breda family were described as a very close family And in the summer before these murders happened in the January, um, the family basically all moved back to South Africa. So the brothers had kind of been away to university and things. And I think they'd lived in Australia for a while and then they'd all come back to South Africa. And this was the first time they they were all finally together again for a very long time. And it was described they enjoyed a very long summer of fun activities. They were always having a laugh and they just genuinely really got on with each other. So, getting to the night of the murder. So, this was Monday the 26th of January in 2015, and it was just an ordinary night for this family. So, Henry Breda came home at about 6pm while Teresa was cooking the tea. Marley, the sister, was doing homework in the room, and Rudy was out for a uh, run before dinner. Uh, And Martin was just having a few wines, the dad, and later on he was joined by Henry. And they had this really nice family dinner, just really ordinary, And then afterwards, they all cleaned up together. They all did the dishes. So after dinner, Martin, the dad, he did some work on his laptop. Marley went upstairs to do some more homework. Uh, Teresa Teresa was on the phone to her brother. And Henry and Rudy were just watching some TV. Uh, Henry, Rudy and Martin then decided to watch Star Trek. They think they'd got a new kind of like surround system. You know, they wanted to test out this new gadget. And then after that, they all went to bed. It was a very ordinary night. They went to bed at a reasonable hour. Um, and Henry and Rudy shared a room. They were the two brothers. And Rudy fell asleep straight away, apparently. But Henry just couldn't sleep that night, he said. So he tried listening to music and he just couldn't sleep. And then at 2 to 3 a.m., he went to the bathroom and played on some games on his phone. Which, I mean, if I couldn't sleep, I don't think that's what I'd do. But I don't know, maybe that's what some people do. He just, he really couldn't sleep that night. And as you can imagine, at 2 to 3 a.m. in the morning, the house was silent. You could literally hear a pin drop. So this is when Henry said that he started to hear very loud noises coming from downstairs, he thought. 
So he decided to come out of the bathroom to kind of like look down the stairs. And then that's when he realised that the noises were actually coming from his bedroom. Now, this is when Henry Breda described that he saw a shadowed figure in all black head to toe wearing a mask, um, just kind of like eye holes and mouth holes. He realised that the figure was attacking his brother Rudy in his sleep. Henry then started to scream for help and Martin, the dad, came in uh, just to see what was going on and he turned the lights on. And this is when Henry realised that he had an axe in his hand that he was using to attack Rudy in his sleep. The attacker then went to hit Martin in the back and several moments later, both Rudy and Martin fell silent. Um, So Henry was just stood in the corner of the bedroom shaking. He didn't know what to do. I guess he was just in complete shock. And he said he he didn't know what to do to help. He was trying to just scream, but he said he was silenced with shock. And he also described how the attacker was laughing during the attacks on his brother and his dad. This is when the mum runs in after she'd heard all this commotion. And the attacker then, again with the axe, attacked the mum in the corridor of the house. Henry was just standing back in the corner And that is when the attacker turned on Henry. As Henry described, he was still stood kind of in the corner of the room and the attacker started to walk to Henry. But very slowly, Henry said he didn't really seem like he had much urgency. And Henry said he thought this was because he knew he had the power. Um, You know, Henry was just confined in this little corner and the attacker was kind of trying to play on it a bit. The attacker came up to Henry holding the axe kind of like above his head, like ready to hit Henry. And this is when Henry blocks the axe as he takes a swing. So he pulls his hand out and blocks the axe so it doesn't hit him. Henry Breda then manages to wrestle the axe off the attacker and pushes him away. The attacker then pulled a knife out of his pocket and was about to stab Henry. It was described that they were both kind of like struggling for each other. Henry was still trying to push him away. They kind of had their arms intertwined and just, you know, when nothing's really happening, they're just two people kind of going against each other with their hands, but no one was really getting anywhere. However, the attacker then gained control and he stabbed Henry in the chest and the arm. Henry, however, managed to punch the attacker in the shoulder and so the knife dropped. The attacker then ran out of the room as fast as he could and Henry ran after him. And that is when he saw his mother and his sister as well lying on the floor and they'd obviously been attacked with the axe and he said that there was blood everywhere. So Henry decided to run after him with the axe that had fallen to the floor and he ran down the stairs and he tried to throw the axe at him. Henry, however, stumbled and he fell down the stairs as he threw it. So he got back up and the side door to the house was open so he could obviously tell that the attacker had gone out there Um, and he had a quick look outside but he couldn't see anything. So Henry then tried to call his girlfriend who I believe was in Australia and he started trying to Google emergency numbers, um, emergency services numbers for like 999 on his phone and this is quite a crucial part in the case which we'll come back to later. He then went back upstairs. He decided not to call the emergency services. He googled the numbers for a while and then went back upstairs, which to me is very strange. And he could see that his sister Marley was still moving a bit, so he knew that she must still be alive. Henry, however, then passed out. Um, He described how he must have just passed out in complete shock, but he passed out for two hours. Um, And he was described to wake up completely dazed and confused. He kind of like forgot what happened for a minute. And then he looked up and obviously saw around him this horrible crime scene. He then went to get his phone from downstairs again and started Googling emergency emergency service numbers once again. 
He then called them from the landline in the kitchen at 7.12am. Bearing in mind, as I said, Henry first heard these noises at 2 to 3am in the morning. So he decided to call 112, which is basically the South African version of 999. And this call is very it's very strange and it's very frustrating. And when you first hear it, hear it in a very different way to the way you will at the end of this case. That's all I'm going to say. Don't want to give any spoils, spoilers away. So he was on the phone with the operator and she just she just really didn't seem to be bothered about what Henry was telling her. He was saying, obviously, my family have been killed. She basically couldn't find the address. He was trying to describe where he lived so that he could get ambulances to the house to try and save his family. The address he was describing, she couldn't find it on Google Maps or anything. It's just very frustrating and he gets put on hold a few times. And overall, it's a 25-minute call. It's an extortionate time for an emergency services call. You know, it's straight away address, you get the help to you, especially in this case where it was kind of like life or death, you know. His sister Marley was still moving. These minutes were crucial. After a 25-minute call, she finally dispatched an ambulance. So I'm just going to play a short clip of the phone call now between Henry and the operator. What is Stephen? What is your emergency? I um yeah, I need an ambulance. Lots of um. You need an been... ambulance. Yes, please. What's your name, sir? Uh, Henry from Bradar. Henry, what's the yes. contact number you're phoning from? Um, my home phone number, but um, I'm not sure what the home phone number is. My cell phone. Uh, we're at 12 Husker Street, please. Who else is in the house? There's no one else. Uh, everyone else. I need else the is... contact number, please. Yeah. Okay. O two one. O two one. Double eight double zero. Double eight double zero. Four nine three. Four nine three. And you need the ambulance to go to what? Number twelve, Hoska Street. Hoska. Hoska. G O S. G O S. K E. What area is this? It's in Stellenbosch, and it's it's in the Zolta Estate. Number twelve, Hoska Street in yes. Stellenbosch. Yes. I'm not picking it up for Stellenbosch. I'm picking it up for Bortus of Molniton. Um, it, well, we're in, okay, in, in the Zolta Winelands. It's an estate. I'm not picking it up, okay, for Stellenbosch. What area in Stellenbosch are you in? Um, I, I don't know. That's all that. We're in the Zolta Winelands. It's an estate. It's a security estate. Are you sure it's 12? Hosker Street. Yes, Hosker absolutely. Hosker in Stellenbosch. Yeah, can you please just send an ambulance or more than one ambulance to Desolza Wineland in Stellenbosch? Desolza? Yeah, can you find that please? What? And you the patient? No, no, my family is someone attacked my family. Hey? Someone has attacked my family in my house. Okay, so you need the police. Oh, well, ambulance. And an ambulance, please. Yes. Now, who is um, injured? My, I think everyone. Everyone in your house? Everyone, four people, yes. Adults, two adults? Two adults and two, well, three adults and one teenage girl, yes. What are the injuries? Um, head injuries, I'd look for. Are they conscious? I don't think so. My sister's moving, but that's it. Suspects still on scene, Lisa. Sorry? Are there any suspects on scene? Uh, no. With an X. Okay, stay on the line. I'm going to speak to the police. Thank you, but please send an ambulance as quickly as possible. So 
as I said, you can tell how frustrating that call is. Just really the lack of urgency that the operator seems to have. She just doesn't really seem seem to be wanting to help or seem to be trying to help him. As I say, they lived in this gated community and so it's very high security and so all the addresses and things aren't available on Google Maps. So I kind of understand why she maybe couldn't find it, but she's not really trying to find any other way. She just doesn't seem to be bothered. After Henry was put on hold, as was played just at the end of the clip there, he then tried to describe to her the closest address on maps. So he basically got his phone up and he tried to find the closest address that he could see on Google Maps so that he could maybe direct her to there. He told her to send an ambulance to a house nearby and he would meet them there. And still, she was still saying she couldn't find it, which is really frustrating because it's literally on map. Eventually, they, dis- they managed to dispatch an ambulance to the house nearby and Henry ran and they followed him back to the house. The first paramedic on the scene said the first floor was a chaos of blood. He just said there was blood everywhere. And he said the house was very undisturbed, very untouched on the bottom floor, but the first floor was like a waterfall of blood. Marley suffered five blows to the head from the axe and various other injuries. She was rushed rushed to hospital and was able to get in a stable condition, but it was obviously very severe. But she was the only member of the family that survived the attack. Martin, Rudy and Teresa were pronounced dead at the scene. Um, Axe blows to their heads were the main cause of death. So the only two surviving witnesses are obviously Henry and Marley. However, it takes a year and a half later before any arrests happen. Obviously, in this investigation, as I said, the only eyewitnesses are Henry and Marley. So these were the main people who were questioned. Henry, however, was traumatised, which is obvious. You know, he's seen his family murdered in front of him. I think trauma from this emergency call as well, just just the absolute shock of it all. Um, And he said that he could still hear the attackers laugh whenever he closed his eyes. Marley physically recovered very very quickly and it was kind of like a miracle doctors were saying but mentally she couldn't remember anything from the night she had a form of amnesia that can apparently happen in attacks like this and obviously she had very severe injuries to her head which has obviously damaged some of her brain and some of her memory that left henry to be the only witness then so this whole The whole investigation that I've described so far has obviously been from Henry's perspective because he is the only witness. Obviously, Marley, you know, she was deemed not a witness because she couldn't remember anything from that night. So investigations then started to get underway and they started to try and find the attacker or the people responsible. So at the time of the murders, a gang called the Balaclava Gang was in operation in South Africa um, and they'd basically, they'd undergo about 60 burglaries, I believe, over the last months during the time of the murder. And so the police really started to look into if this, if this gang might be responsible. As Henry had said, um, the attacker was masked and could possibly have been wearing a balaclava, which obviously fits with their remit. However, as the police furthered their investigations, they found that the murder cases of the Van Breda family didn't really fit the motives of the balaclava, of the balaclava gang. There was no forced entry into the house and this balaclava gang, they're all about burglaries, not really murders, and no valuables were stolen from the house on the night of the murder. Now, as I was saying before, this family were very well off. You know, this is a million dollar property and it's crazy to think that if a gang had come in or burglars, that they had not taken one thing. Um, There was also no evidence that anyone else had really been into the house that they could see. Like I said, nothing had been taken. 
Something else that didn't seem to fit the Balaclava gang's remit is that the knife and the axe that the attacker used were from the household. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that a Balaclava gang or burglars that may need to protect themselves, they would bring weapons with them. And even if they use weapons from the household, they wouldn't leave them behind because it's obviously going to have their DNA, their prints on them. Police at first thought that maybe this was a burglary that had gone wrong because Henry had heard and then so this person started attacking the family because they'd found out that he'd burgled them. But that's a very, very extreme theory. And as I said, there was no evidence that anything had been taken or tried to be taken. Police then decided that this murder case had to be a cold-blooded murder, that the attacker must have come in with the intentions of murdering the family and nothing else. The case then started to turn to Henry. And increasing evidence was kind of found that seemed to point towards him. So the neighbours had said that they had heard arguing on the night of the crime. This one woman who lived next door said she kind of heard screaming and yelling and it drew her attention, but she didn't really think anything of it. She just thought it was a usual family argument. But she said this was quite strange for the family because, as I said before, they, they were known to be so, so close. As I say, another piece of evidence, the knife and the axe were from the household, which kind of seemed to indicate more to Henry as well. Another thing is it is obviously a gated community. And as I said at the start, you could only get into properties with an access card and it would be extremely hard to break into these properties. Henry also had his family's blood all over him, which I mean, this doesn't necessarily indicate him to be the murderer, because obviously throughout the night he was at close proximity with the bodies because he was kind of trying to help his family and he was trying to see if Marley was alive. Um, but the police said that this was a crucial piece of evidence. Another key thing is that why didn't the attacker kill Henry? As I said, the attacker went for Henry, but the way Henry described it, it seemed like the attacker maybe had special treatment for Henry, which just doesn't make sense in a murder case. And the fact that this mur this murderer had so brutally killed his family and then Henry had managed to get the axe off him and knife off him and then he just ran away, it just doesn't really seem to make sense. So moving on a bit, on June the 14th in 2016, Henry decided to turn himself in. He was charged with three counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, one count of obstruction of justice and one count of tampering with a crime scene. The police now needed to look into all the evidence. Obviously, as I said, so far the case has only been from Henry's perspective and if he was a suspect, if he was now a suspect to be the murderer, his account isn't really justified. So Henry's injuries were described to be self-inflicted and superficial. As he described, the attacker had stabbed him with the knife on his chest and his arm, but from examinations, it was pretty clear that he'd obviously done these to himself to look like he'd been attacked as well. They then turned to phone records to see kind of what he did on the night, you know, the way he described that he'd called his girlfriend, he'd called the emergency services. They needed to check out all this evidence. So at 4.24, Henry had indeed called his girlfriend. And at 7.12 in the morning, he started searching for emergency service details on Google. And as I said before, I was going to come back to this fact. Now, this was very, very strange because on the fridge in the house, which had always, always been there, apparently, Teresa had a big piece of paper put up saying all the emergency services contacts. And it had apparently been there all their life. So it seemed very, very strange that he needed to then Google them. And it's like here, you know, you don't need to Google 999. Everyone just knows it. So it was kind of deemed that this was a way of him wasting time. 
At 7.15, he called the emergency services, which is with that woman the clip I played before. And then after that, he called his girlfriend again. Now back to the emergency call that I played before. Now, as I said, this was very frustrating. You know, the operator didn't seem to be bothered. But if you actually listen to that clip again, if you go back and listen to it, he just doesn't sound very bothered either by this whole thing. He described that he was in shock and obviously people deal with it in different ways. But there was no sense of sadness or fear, really. And he seemed to go on with the delay. He didn't seem that frustrated that she couldn't find it. He was just kind of going along with it. The key questions to think about really is, you know, Marley was still alive. Was he trying to buy time so that she would die? Is that why he was trying to delay it? I don't know, but I don't know, but that could be very possible. So the operator who was obviously sounding very unbothered, she basically thought that this call was a prank and that's why she was so unhelpful. She just said how he didn't seem bothered. She thought it was someone trying to joke around. And she actually said she thought she heard him laughing at one point during the phone call. And I think that's such a key point for an emergency services person to think that this is a prank. That must really prove the kind of, you know, the tone of Henry was very wrong. You know, obviously, if his family had been murdered in front of him, it's such a shocking thing. And I don't think anyone knows how they would react but she just said she'd obviously dealt with it before and she said it was very strange and it just didn't seem normal. It seemed like a joke. On the 24th of April in 2017, the trial began and Henry pleaded not guilty to all the charges. There was an 18-page explanation of his not guilty plea. And the key thing here is that the plea explanation and the initial, initial statements that Henry had given to the police about the murders seemed to differ. In the initial statement, he said there was one attacker. As I described it, he said this one man was attacking his family and then he ran off. But in the plea on in the trial, he said that there were a number of attackers and they were Afrikaan. And this is basically trying to point towards a gang to obviously try and put the blame away from him. If there is more than one member, it's more likely to be a gang. And the main questions that were brought up in this trial were that how could someone have got in without an access card? You know, they would have had to climb these huge gates, 360 degree CCTV cameras. And there was also a guard in the gated community. And he said that that night, no one breached the security. You know, they're up all night looking at the CCTV. And he said there was nothing suspicious seen. There was also no unknown or foreign footprints or DNA in the house. And there was no sign of a break or enter. It was basically deemed that on the night, no one else went into that house. However, even though all this evidence was pointing towards Henry, they still had to prove him beyond reasonable doubt. They obviously, they had all these theories and not theories. It is evidence and it points towards Henry, but it's not solid enough to make an arrest. They then knew that they had to find holes in his statements. And when they tried to do this, Henry's case just seemed to break down. So as I said, the neighbour had said that she'd heard arguing on the night. And Henry replied to this, and said it was them watching Star Trek, and it was just the loud noises in Star Trek. And the woman replied that, you know, I know the difference between yelling and a film, which is obviously, that's very clear, it's two, it's two completely different noises. He also said that they'd gone to bed at 10, and this woman said she was hurt, hurt, and this woman said she heard all this screaming in the early hours of the morning, obviously at the time of these murders. And so if they'd gone to bed before 10, they probably watched Star Trek about 8, 9. So it just, what Henry was saying just really didn't fit. Secondly, the blood splattering on Henry's clothes. 
Um, it was basically deemed that he would have had to be in a very, very close contact at the time of the murders in the way that the blood was splattered on his tops. Obviously, this is like detailed forensic searches, but they could tell from the injuries that had been sustained what splatters the attacker would have had on him, and this matched what Henry had. Rudy's blood was also found in the bathroom. All his wounds, as I said, were superficial, and some of the weapons were found out to have been washed in the shower. There was kind of like forensics that went in, and they found that blood had been washed out in the shower. On the 31st of October, and I think you can really see how long this case has taken. As I say, these murders take place January 2015. It's now the 31st of October in 2017. So as I said, on the 31st of October 2017, Henry took to the stand in court. And he apparently basically stood there and seemed very emotionless. His whole account of the murders were very scripted. It just seemed like he'd made up this story, he'd learned it and he had to stick to it. It wasn't, it was all very mechanical how he seemed to be feeling and reacting. Everyone in the courtroom could apparently see holes in the evidence. And he was mainly questioned why he didn't, why he didn't call straight away, why it took him three hours to call the emergency services after the deaths. Obviously, he's, he'd said he'd passed out, which is obviously understandable in shock, but it's just really strange for two whole hours. And, you know, them two whole hours are crucial. I think the first thing you would do if your family had been murdered is call the emergency services straight away, try and get any help that you can. So it all, it all just seems very strange. He was also questioned about the calls and the searches on Google and why he hadn't just, you know, called the obvious one or looked on the fridge. And he basically said that he wanted to make sure it was the right call. So all these tactics were basically trying to delay him from getting help. Finally, on the 7th of July in 2017, Henry was charged with three life sentences, a 15-year sentence for the attempted murder of his sister Marley and one year for the obstruction of justice. So justice was finally brought for Henry I don't think he ever pleaded guilty, but he was obviously found guilty for these murders. I think the saddest part of this case is about the sister Marley. She is now fully recovered, but she still has no memory of that night. And she's obviously, she's lost her whole family. You know, she's woken up in a hospital bed and she's lost everything. And her brother has committed these crimes. I looked into a bit of Marley because I found it quite interesting. She apparently has still made no statement on the case. I guess she's just in complete shock that her brother could have done this. She doesn't really want to believe it. Uh, but she's now living and I think she's she's now living with another family and I think she has special security around her constantly. And she's, I mean, she's obviously traumatised by this whole thing. She's had to have had constant help. So the big thing in this case and the big thing that was brought up in court is basically like why? Why did Henry Breddett suddenly, suddenly turn on his family and murder them? In the trial, there was no unearthed evidence that Henry had a psychopath nature and there was no history of violence or crime and still to this day no one really gets why he did it. One theory is that there was a motive of drug money and that Henry wanted all this money from his family to set up his own business but it's still very unclear if, if this murder was planned or if it was spur of the moment. He'd obviously planned his story in a lot of detail to try and make it out like it wasn't him. You know the whole the attacker came over and he blocked him I don't think these were things that you would think of on the spot. So I think it was a planned murder personally. I'd like to let me know what you think, then I'd love to know. 
So that brings me to the end of the case and so the end of another episode. I really hope you've enjoyed it and thank you for listening. And as I said, if you have any opinions on this case or you've got any other cases that you want me to talk about, please let me know, solved or unsolved. I really want to try and do an unsolved one next time. Thank you and I'll see you next time for another murder mystery, solved or unsolved.